Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real World Productivity Podcast. I'm Adam Moody, and today I'm talking with Robbie Slaughter, a workflow and productivity expert, about his background and a wide variety of experiences so we can get a deeper look and everyone uh, can definitely take something away. He's got a lot of experience. I'm really looking forward to talking with him today. So welcome, Robbie. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Definitely. Well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, if you can, can you catch everyone up? Uh, we just had a quick chat, but can you uh, kind of tell people a little bit about yourself and your experience so we can get on the same page? Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in productivity, but for me, I'm interested not just in the how, but really the why. Why do we feel the drive to get things done and why do we get distracted? And then also, what are our perceptions around work? And I think that the biggest challenge is we have to being productive really lie in those second two questions. Why we do what we do and what are our preconceptions? And that's really where I'm, I'm focused in this process of helping people become more productive, more efficient, more engaged at work and beyond. Outstanding. Um, so a little bit about your background. Where, like, where are you uh, coming from in terms of, I guess, it doesn't have to be just productivity, time management type of stuff, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm a lifelong troublemaker. Uh, my undergraduate <laughs> focus was it was in mathematics. I've done a lot of uh, computer work and I'm kind of a recovering programmer. And uh, I think that, you know, when you get into, into technology and in, into mathematics and sort of this rigorous way of thinking, you sort of feel like there's an elegant, simple solution for every problem. And if we just had that solution, that would, that would make things great. But of course, people are not elegant and simple. People are complicated and messy. And I, I just like people. And I've, I've just learned so much about how people perceive what it is they have to do, how they get along or, or don't get along in the workplace or elsewhere. And I've become fascinated with that. And so my journey started out uh, pretty rigorous in terms of what we could and could not do. And I've come into this, this understanding that really it's about what individuals believe and uh, shifting and changing that belief to help them get more done and enjoy more of their life. Interesting. Okay. And you touched on something. So your background is in mathematics. And you also said, you know, you're really into, uh, you know, getting to understand and know people. And I don't think that those things are opposed. I'm not going to say like, oh, you're a scientist and you can't like people or have a normal relationship. But it is interesting uh, that, you know, that you, a lot of times you don't see a heavy overlap in those areas. Um, and I'm married to one. My wife is a biophysicist and is one of the most outgoing and gregarious people who really enjoys knowing people, you know, not just talking, but knowing them. Uh, so to me, that's really interesting. What, did you, was this something you kind of went down the mathematics route and then as time goes on, you're like, man, I just, I really enjoy more of the people aspect or, or something like that? Well, I think that I learned more from watching people struggle with math problems, struggle with computer systems, struggle with interfaces than I did in the process of designing and solving those problems. I, I had a job at Microsoft many, many years ago working in user experience on a Microsoft project. And I was fascinated because I thought that, you know, designing the software that I worked on, that to me was interesting. But when we got in the usability lab and watched people try to use it, my mind was totally blown because the way that people interact with the software application and the system that we had built completely unmoored me. I, I just had no idea that people would see it that way. And that very much shifted my perspective. I began to think about what is this experience of being an end user or being an individual coming into a complex environment, just trying to get something done. And no matter how much we try to design up front for the ideal case, it's really the end reality where the rubber meets the road that, that has much more of an impact on our experiences. Interesting, okay. Well, I'm going to circle back to what you talked about at the very beginning about the why of productivity. 
but I do want to cover something first because while I was uh, looking through some of your material, um, I, I thought it was really interesting. I think it's a book you have, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you know, you're talking about failure um, and you know, how you, you make mistakes and you're going to continue to make mistakes. And you know, I think that many of us, myself uh, included, are guilty of trying to be perfect or we're afraid to, to you know, publicly admit mistakes. Um, I guess what made you, uh, since I have, I think it was a book, right? Am I mistaken? Yeah, my, my, I, have a, I wrote a book called Failure, the Secret to Success. That's it. Okay, so what made you kind of take a different tact? Because I would say that there's not a lot of people who have written a book that are saying, you know, hey, failure is the way to go. That's right. Well, I, I think, first of all, the big thing was just sort of discovering how much that is part of the private struggle. Whenever you create something for other people to use or interact with, most of the time, you'll never see that person doing it. If, if you're the IKEA furniture designer, you will not see the thousands upon thousands of couples who will fight to the death over <laughs> your design. And yeah. yet, that's really the essence of creating a, a furniture design is how people put it together, how they enjoy it in their space. And so most of human experience is very often these private struggles, these difficult failures that we don't talk about. And so much of who we are is about how we learn to do things. And in fact, really all success is just a series of failures. That's a famous quote from Winston Churchill, success is going from failure to failure with great enthusiasm. But you know, if you learn to ride a bike, that means you fell down a whole bunch. If you learn to play an instrument, that means you sounded terrible for years and years. It's really about getting through the failure process to become good at something. So I'm not gonna uh, tell you to reveal everything in your book, um, but as someone I haven't had the chance to read it, um, you know, can you tell us a, a little bit more? Because I am curious, you know, it, I guess I would say, how are you better now for, for looking deeper into this uh, and maybe incorporating that into your life? Yeah, and actually the topic of failures become more popular now. There's quite a few books about mm -hmm. the notion uh, of making errors and mistakes as part of the process. I think the critical thing for me is the notion of failing on purpose. And this really seems very counterintuitive. We don't want to do the wrong thing. But when I worked as a college professor, I would tell my students right away, if every one of you get an A, then I have failed at my job. And that doesn't mean that I'm trying to make things difficult and give you bad grades. It just doesn't prove to me that you've learned every, anything if you're always getting A's. In fact, whenever you miss something, that's a perfect instruction for what you need to study for next time. So yeah. really, I want to make sure you don't get some things right so that we can always keep learning and growing. And I think that's one of the critical things that I learned around in this book, and that's been a great response from readers, is the idea of actually setting out to make mistakes on purpose. And, and so many great stories from history are about not, uh, oh, I have this idea, I'm going to do it, but hmm, that's not what I expected at all. And uh, that really leads to innovation and discovery. Gotcha. Okay, well, that really makes a lot of sense uh, to me. So would that be the basic premise is just saying that with failure, I mean, I think of it as, um, I forget, somebody said this, but, you know, or maybe it's just kind of a catchphrase now, but fail fast, right? Right. That you want to fail fast. And to me, that makes sense. But beyond that, what is it that you kind of encourage people to do? You know, is it to look for, is it changing the mindset and saying when you fail, it's, it's just an opportunity to learn and, and do better? Or what's the main uh, idea there? Yeah, definitely it's part of this mindset shift, right? Don't look at failure as loss or tragedy. Look at failure as information. Look at it as an opportunity to improve. Uh, but also look at failure as part of the process, right? That you have to make mistakes and do things wrong in order to figure out where you want to go. And there's going to be lots of experimentation. There's going to be lots of, uh, of messing around and noodling around to try to solve an interesting problem. 
and that very rarely is the path from A to B a straight line, especially if you don't know how to get from A to B. And so yeah. just embracing that experience is truly profound and is really contrary to most of the ways that we learn about how, how to do things in our world. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Then uh, let's kind of go back then to the why of productivity, because I, I think uh, I agree with you. We tend to focus a lot on the how, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's like shiny objects, uh, you know, the next cool to-do list that's going to help us uh, master everything. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you just mentioned that you're more interested in the why of productivity. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I think that human beings out there are best when they're doing exactly one of two things. Either getting things done or consciously not doing anything. And the real struggle we have is when we fluctuate between the two. So I like the idea of being focused and being productive and generating value. And I love the idea of saying, okay, I'm off the clock, I'm on vacation, I'm taking a break, I'm listening to music, I'm relaxing, I'm watching a movie. Just being intentional about what are you doing? Are you getting something done or are you taking a break? And I think that really is the critical why, because productivity is about uh, uh, setting objectives and then meeting those objectives. And if your objective is to just relax, then you are being tremendously productive if you can actually do that. And I know for a lot of us, and I don't know if you're this way, Adam, that uh, it could sometimes take time to wind down and stop thinking about what you want to do or have to do and really just be able to be in that moment and, and be on vacation or relax at the end of the day or whatever it might be. So I think that intentionality is the critical why that we tend to miss. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, Robbie. I think that, um, and something that I've noticed as the years tick by uh, for myself, again, is just that it is harder uh, to wind down. And, you know, something I took to heart was um, uh, Cal Newport. So uh, something he had, he had, a, obviously he's got some great books, but uh, he also had a blog post about how he kind of ended his day. And I thought it was really good because, I brought this up with some other people and they're like, well, that's kind of weird. And all it was, was saying, you know, check your calendar, check all your to-dos, just get all that stuff out of your head, put it in your system so you know you're ready. And then tell yourself you're done for the day and get out of your office and go. And I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. And sure enough, it worked. And I think it's also a mind mindset, kind of a mindset shift thing. Uh, but yeah, it, it's harder now. I used to feel like it, it was easier and I don't know um, if it's, uh, the world we live in or something to do with age, maybe both. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think part of it is, is both. So certainly we live in a very stimulated world. And as we grow older, we, we grow in responsibilities and we grow in the, our realization of opportunities. And in reality, we become more aware of a limited time we have to do the things that we want to do. And I think that makes it harder to, to step away and to let go. And I also think that a lot of the, the productivity culture sends a message which I think can be problematic. There's a uh, Leo Babuda who does the uh, Zen Habits blog, talks about reducing the number of goals. People say you should just have a, a five goals in the course of a day. That's an old thing from um, Napoleon Hill, right? Or, mm. or three goals, or maybe just one goal, just one thing I'm working Do on. Do that one thing. What about, what about having uh, uh, no goals, right? Just, just being. And I think that's a powerful idea too. And, and a lot of times we, we try to get into this, this more and more focused, more and more specific, more and more efficient, but really productivity is about making the decision to do something or deciding not to do something and embracing the power of choice, not the mandatory nature of output. And I think that's one of the problems with productivity. It has that sense of being, of producing in it 
when it's really about decision making. It's really about the human capacity to choose whether you're going to do something or you're going to not do something. You're going to be a human doing for a moment or a human being. Definitely. And I think that that ties in as well to what you're saying about, hey, either you're focused and you're doing something and that's great and that's what we're here for, or you're not, again, and just saying that, yeah, I don't want to try to um, write an email while I'm watching uh, Netflix or something. I, you know, I, I don't want to live that life. And that's something I discovered for myself and why I got so into this was saying, hey, I want to work because maybe I just want to work four or five hours a day. And then I want to go do other things. I, for me, it's hiking, trail running, reading a book, or sometimes just kind of sitting there staring at the tree and thinking, you know, random thoughts or looking at the clouds float by. And for me, that's, that's kind of like, wow, that's my highest loftiest goals. Sure. But uh, yeah, I think the other way this works too is uh, evening people out. And I'm, I'm kind of curious how you, uh, how you see this. Uh, maybe not evening people out, but saying, if you have some of these systems in place, like workflows, process, you have a, some sort of a productivity system, that for me, it helps me uh, keep from kind of going off the rails and helps me easily kind of go higher than normal. I don't, do you agree with that? or? or? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, although I think for most people, that's probably four or five steps down the road. Yeah. And uh, I think what a lot of people tend to do, they tend to get a David Allen book or they go to a Franklin Covey class and then, okay, I've got this system and I'm going to adopt this system, I'm going to follow it and everything's going to be great. But that really doesn't work because that system was designed by a person and that system works well for that person, but it doesn't necessarily going to work well for you. And you haven't been through the entire experiential process of getting to where they are for that system. I think the first thing you do is to really sort of understand what does it mean to be efficient and be effective and what are the tools that you already have for efficiency and for effectiveness mm -hmm. that you're already kind of using and and you know people do it i i go in offices and i watch people and they'll go sit on the computer they'll turn the computer on and then they'll go and get a cup of coffee in the break room and come back and that is an example of batching right of using yeah. the mechanism that you know it takes three minutes for the computer to boot and you're getting a cup of coffee at the same time but no one really thought about that they just started doing it and say, okay, you've already developed a tool. Understand the tool and begin to put it into other elements of your life. And you'll derive satisfaction, derive success, derive growth from that. Just writing down a quick note. I think that's a really good one. I'm gonna label it conscious batching. Hopefully nobody's uh, said that before. Maybe somebody has, but yeah. yeah, I think that's good. A lot of times just opening the eyes to like, hey, you're already doing some of this stuff. Just maybe make note of it and be like, aha, where can sure. I do this elsewhere? One of my favorite examples of productivity, I think this is one of the most underutilized and easiest productivity tools forever, is the 4,000-year-old invention called writing. <laughs> and uh, I, I often give uh, in my speeches, I say I have this piece of advanced technology with me. Everywhere I go, it's called a pen and paper. Thanks. And the notion of ubiquitous capture, I think that comes from 43 folders, the ubiquitous capture concept. The idea that you can write things down and take them out of your mind that is a tremendously powerful tool for productivity. And I'm just fascinated by how often I go to meetings or talk to people and you can see them doing the mental gymnastics to help themselves remember something later when they could have just written it down. Yeah. So we don't need a whole complex productivity system. We just need to start thinking about, hey, how can I write things down? How can I, what did you say, consciously batch things, right? Yeah. How can I take a moment to understand the system works before... I begin to get something real complex and advanced. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. That's really good. It's a habit I've been working on is 
trying to find uh, a good way to carry something with me. And like, uh, for those of you who are not here with us, you can't see it, but the little notebook that Robbie had, I don't know what, it's like an index card size roughly. So it's, yeah, it's, it's called a jotter. You can buy them, you know, from any store, but people use index cards. It doesn't really matter what you use, yeah. but I think that paper and pen are essential because you can use your phone, but you get distracted. People think you're texting, whereas pen, paper, it, it improves the relationship because then you are writing down what the person is saying and it also creates a connectivity to the information and the task at hand. So yeah. it's low tech, but it's high power. Definitely, and you may know, or I would assume you probably know more about this than I do. I've just heard anecdotally, I never looked into the science behind this, but that just the act of writing while you're doing or learning kind of helps reinforce that. And I assume that's just kind of the two modes of like you're inputting information in your brain, but then you're actually having to transform it and do something. Yeah, so there, there's actually two phenomena on there. So one is the kinesthetic effect, right? Which is the idea that emotion that is combined with a learning experience can create a stronger memory of that learning experience, right? And so uh, you can do this yourself. So if you want to study a topic that you don't normally study, find a different place to study it in. So if you want to learn a new language, don't sit at the same desk you always sit at. Find a new unusual place to sit just to study that language and it will create a little more effect in your mind. And the second element is actually called the Zagarnik effect. And I talk about this in my new book. It comes from a woman named Luma Zagarnik, who was a psychology researcher in the 20s. And she discovered that uh, when you're at the restaurant and the waiter comes by and takes your order, once they have dropped off whatever it is you ordered, they have no idea what you selected. Mm -hmm. They can't remember anything about the details. And you know, you go to a restaurant and waiters, will have this incredible memory for who had the sauce and who was dairy free and who was getting the extra options and who had the Diet Coke. Uh, but when they come back, they forget it all once it's all dropped off. And it's this notion of mental weight, right? That if you have to remember things, you're constantly being held down by that information. And once you can let go of it, either by doing the task or by capturing it on paper, it no longer weighs you down. It provides additional clarity for you to focus. And there's just tons of good data about how effective it is to get things out of your head and into a place where either they're done, you've handed off the food, or it's written down and you can forget about it. Definitely. Well, I love that. And I'll, I'll just chalk that up to another one. Anyone who's uh, interested, grab a notebook and start carrying it with you. It's, it's been big for me. And uh, yeah, I agree. And also, uh, if anyone wants to look that up, I'll have to, I'll put that in the show notes. It's Zygernick. Uh, I always mispronounce it. Zygernick, I think. Zygernick, I believe, is the correct Russian right. pronunciation. Yeah, I was like, uh, but yeah, really interesting uh, fascination, kind of the open loop, closed loop uh, type of idea. And just, yeah, really interesting how you can use that. And it doesn't, because sometimes it presents itself, obviously, as a detraction or a negative, but it can be used to good effect as well. So. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, uh, we've talked about the why. Uh, a little bit. So a lot of people I talk to and who are going to be listening to this, uh, you know, work in uh, small businesses or they want to start a business for themselves. Um, so you deal a lot with workflows and like we, you know, we gave one example of kind of the batching that's passed. So I guess what would you tell someone who's coming into this and they've got a small team and maybe they're getting to that point where they're feeling a, maybe a little bit overwhelmed. Is there any good starting points if they're not someone who's quote unquote like into productivity? <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the question, and, and absolutely there are. There are a lot of things that uh, I'm surprised how infrequently people do. A good example is the size of your computer screen. I will go into offices, visit small businesses, and they'll have this tiny little 15-inch monitor. 
And every study that's ever been done on screen real estate, the amount of size of your screen, shows just tremendous improvements in productivity by getting a larger screen or getting multiple screens and adding them on. And the cost is minuscule. It's a couple hundred bucks for a screen. You can do the math yourself. It'll pay for itself in, in weeks. <laughs> it's an incredibly effective technique. That you can is. do things like uh, uh, change the culture, right? So um, if your office has an interruption culture, right, where people interrupt each other all the time, you can say, hey, let's try not to interrupt each other, right? And so uh, I think Jason Fried uh, likes to say they have no meeting Fridays or, or they'll have systems where you put yourself on do not disturb, take yourself to a conference room, go to a coffee shop, just work for periods of time in which you choose to be uninterruptible. Again, it's a very small change of a huge impact. Uh, speaking of computers, I'm also amazed how often people operate on computers that are five or seven years old. And you get a new computer and it's fast. You know, it opens windows instantly. You can search at light speed and you'll be amazed how much time you're wasting moving around, making things happen. Even learning keyboard shortcuts. You know how much time you spend every day hitting your hand from the keyboard to the mouse to the keyboard to the mouse? Most small business owners spend a lot of time on the computer. And if you're going from keyboard to mouse constantly, if you just learn a few keyboard shortcuts, you can dramatically improve your day. And these are all things that are not hard. You don't need any expertise to do. You don't need to buy any books, take any classes. But you need to say, hey, I'm going to try that, even though it doesn't sound like it'd be that impactful, because it really is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'll just use uh, to back up what you said with one example for Gmail, uh, you know, just using the shortcuts in that and finding out, oh, they have one button shortcuts for things like archiving emails or you know any deleting, things like that. So you can just fly through your emails. Yeah, and Gmail is a great example. So all you have to know if you're listening to this podcast is when you're in Gmail, press the question mark button and all the shortcuts will pop up. Don't try to memorize them all, just notice that. And then once in a while, jump in and learn what you can press to go forward and back and archive a message, et cetera. And don't stress yourself out memorizing those shortcuts. Just look once in a while. Yeah. And you'll be amazed how fast you move. Yeah, or find the two that you think you're going to use. Because that's like me. I just have two or three that I use. I can't even remember the other ones. Although I'm writing this down. I didn't know you could press question marks. So there we go. I'm glad you told me. <clears throat> um, okay, so that's kind of a business owner tip. Uh, is there anything at kind of a larger scale as far as um, managing? You know, once you get into maybe dealing with a few people, is there anything you see that, that causes inefficiencies in the sense of, uh, I guess, just once you start to grow a team? Well, I'm, I'm actually going to call you out, Adam, because uh, one of the words you just used is a great example of perception, which is one yeah. of the elements. Uh, you talked about dealing with people. Uh-huh. And uh, that word dealing makes it sound like people are a burden, they're difficult, they're frustrating, they're challenging. And I know the word just came out of your mouth. We use it all the time. But yeah. really, the words we use inform others about our belief systems, mm -hmm. and they tell ourselves, they tell us what we think. And so the first thing I would challenge you to do and challenge anyone to do is really pay attention to the words they're using when they talk about interacting with others. And I think that's the first step. If you just change your words, you're going to begin to change your behavior, and you're going to influence their behaviors. Now, beyond changing your terminology, I think one of the best things to working with a team is to really try uh, to reduce the amount of control that you exert over them. Because working with a team is about trust. It's about understanding that, hey, I know you're not gonna do this the way that I would do it, and I know that you're gonna make mistakes sometimes, make mistakes because you're human. 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace the process of letting you explore and I'm going to be excited about whatever you produce, whether it's good or not good, and really empower people to work on their own. Not only is that autonomy individually meaningful for people, they get to make something and own it, but it's also way more efficient than going back a thousand times to get approval. Email is my favorite example because so many people, when they're writing an email, will get so much input on that email, a customer email, mm. and they spend the whole day going back and forth, editing words and modifying things. No, just give it to one person, let them edit it with somebody else and be done with it. Dramatically more efficient and more empowering. Okay, well, no, I, and I think that's a good insight. I know for myself, that's something I'm still definitely working on. I mean, all of this stuff is, to me, kind of lifelong, right? Nobody's reached the pinnacle of, well, I know how to build relationships perfectly with anyone, but <laughs> but it is good to think about. And just, you know, I think that um, reducing your control, it, because that forces you to, in my mind, you know, go out and find the best people or find the better people, find uh, who can do uh, the best job and ask great questions of the people, train them the best way. Um, yeah, and, and really give people the opportunity to surprise you and the chance to break your trust. I wrote an article a few years ago about um, locks on the cabinet in the supply closet. Hmm. And I went into an office and if you wanted to get a pen out of the supply closet, you had to go to the person who had the lock for the closet. Oh my I thought to myself, this is a good example. You really ought to give people the opportunity to break your trust because if someone's gonna steal a bunch of office supplies, that's a good sign that they're a bad fit. So let them have that opportunity. Let them show who they are. When we bring people on in our company, we kind of have a rule of thumb, which is that you do not work from the office for at least three months. So when you start, you have to start remote. Oh, wow. And really the, the purpose of that is to encourage people to explore and be productive and figure things out on their own, rather than sort of showing up and copying somebody else, even mistakes that we're making. Hmm. Because if you can be productive, if you can generate value, if you can do interesting things on your own time, then you definitely can be part of the organization. But if you have to come in and you have to talk to somebody else, you have to kind of, you know, have FaceTime and that's your whole system, you're probably not going to be a strong fit. Gotcha. That's interesting too. And like you said, the chance to break the trust, obviously, by the time you've hired them, they're probably past the point where they're going to turn out to just be horrible. Uh, but there is that opportunity that they could just kind of go off the deep end and you'd say, well, okay, we dodged a bullet by you know, finding that out sooner rather than later. Sure. Wow. Um, okay. So uh, I'm kind of curious from your point of view, since you spend a lot of time uh, working with people and working with their systems. Uh, so what do you commonly see uh, the problems when they're starting a business? I guess just overall, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this because I don't generally work with people when they're starting their business. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any insights on that. Well, I think the biggest thing people do when they start a business is they don't really think about what they're doing in terms of it being a business, mm. but rather it being an activity which they feel they're good at. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, there's an expression which I love, which is that um, um, if you have uh, uh, products uh, and services and expenses, but no customers, you have a hobby right? Yeah. But if you have customers, but no products and no services, you have a business. Fair right? enough. That is a good one. <laughs> and, and really the purpose of a business is not just to make things. The purpose of a business is to create customers, right? 
to create customers. And, and what I mean by that is you want to do something which draws people in in some way to be excited about whatever it is you have to offer. And a lot of people say, well, I'm good at something, so I'm going to start a business doing that. Like, well, you're really just a freelancer, right? That's not really a business. And, not, and that's not a bad thing to do. You'd be very happy doing that, but it's not really a business. You know, really a business is about creating a set of systems that can generate value for customers and being able to manage and grow and support those systems and, uh, and feed them by creating the right people and the right marketing and whatnot. Makes sense to me. All right, I'm gonna take kind of a pivot here. Uh, I looked at your Facebook page and I saw a big picture of you. I think you were running or finishing a race. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, how do you feel about exercise and its impact on productivity? There is a lot of great data that says that if you are in good shape and you exercise, it has a positive impact on productivity. And I would say that the number one productivity tip that I can give you, and I can almost be confident that you need to take it, is get more sleep. Mm. And after that, it's exercise. And after that, it's eat better. And we haven't even got to anything about, you know, time management techniques or, or folders or email systems or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So absolutely. And, and uh, one of the things about exercise, which is really fascinating, is how mental it is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this, um, this phenomenon when um, you uh, allow yourself to do something. It's called moral licensing. So the way moral licensing works, it says, okay, Adam, I'm making the commitment. I'm starting a brand new diet. Monday, new diet's going to be great. And just to reward myself for this decision, I'm having ice cream tonight. Yes, I'm familiar and guilty. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the way this works is that in our mind, when we make what we believe to be a good moral decision, then that gives us license to make a bad moral decision to, to balance it out, right? And so exercise is very much a part of this, right? So if there are things that we want to do, but we don't feel are good to do, if we've exercised first, then we feel better about doing those sorts of things. And that really allows us to have a better self-concept. So if you want to eat that candy bar, but you've already exercised, then the candy bar won't feel as dissatisfying afterwards. You won't feel as guilty about it. So just using the moral licensing to your advantage by understanding how these things work is very powerful. You need to run 100 miles a day. You just need to have a, a process in place. Definitely. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess the same thing would apply to, uh, in my mind, to eating. You know, hey, if I had my my three servings of uh, vegetables early in the day, then, hey, I can, you know, have some chips and dip or something like that. And right, right. It. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, do you have anything, uh, you know, that you would tell other people who maybe find this difficult where, you know, they're having a hard time, especially right now, I would imagine that this is difficult for people to maybe get into exercise or to be eating the way they know they should be? Yeah, I mean, accountability is huge. And I think that one of the best ways to be accountable is with people who are focused on accountability and not on the relationship they have with you. So, so how you might have a, a spouse yeah. or a, a friend or a person you're in a close relationship with who you want to ask to be your accountability partner, and that can work, but it's even better to find someone with whom you don't have that kind of relationship who can call you out and challenge you and inspire you and excite you, and you can do the same for them. So working with a therapist or a, a coach or even using a, one of the, some of the random uh, services. I use a service called Focusmate, and this is a, uh, an online 
virtual co-working service. So you go to Focusmate, you sign up, and you pick a time slot, and it pairs you with a random person for a video session, and you work with them as if they're in the room for 45 minutes. And it's an amazing aspect of, of human behavior. You, you don't know this person. They're yeah. from anywhere in the world. And yet, because someone else is on their screen working, you're more likely to work. And it works way better than having a friend in the room because you're not going to chit chat with this person. You're going to focus on what you have to do. So I think that accountability can really be powerful, especially if it was someone with whom you don't have a personal relationship. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's great. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds interesting. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little thrown off, but I have heard of this before. So I'm curious if anyone listening has done this, please, uh, if you're uh, listening to the podcast, Later on, leave a comment. I'm curious, and I assume it's probably Focusmate. Is it Focusmate.com? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I've got uh, two more questions. What we have time for, and uh, so this last one, you've got a pretty, again, varied and experienced background. Uh, so, if you could go back in time five years, uh, you know, with perfect hindsight, what would you tell you know five years younger Robbie? Like, hey, either start doing this, stop doing this, something like that. What would be your advice to yourself? Not, not counting stock tips? <laughs> no. And uh, yeah, nothing from Back to the Future or... <laughs> I, I think that what I would tell myself is that right now, you're probably realizing how silly it was to worry about things from five years ago, which means whatever you're worrying about now, is it really going to be an issue in five years? Hmm. And I think that's uh, something that's become a lot really powerful in my life personally, is how many problems that I have are going to be problems in five years. And I'm at a point right now where virtually none of the problems I have are guaranteed to be problems in five years. Yeah. And that, that really feels very freeing to realize because yeah, there's a lot of stress sometimes with things that are happening. But if that stress is really about this moment and these choices and these opportunities, but not about the arc of my life, then I'm choosing it. I'm not stuck with it. Now, that isn't always true. Sometimes we have stresses that we know will be with us. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times, the things we're focused on just don't matter that much in the long run. And yeah. realizing that, I think, can give you better perspective. And yeah, that's great. Get, the more true that becomes. Yeah, I really agree with you on that. And I, uh, something I actually started doing uh, just this year was I started realizing, you know, wow, I'm having a lot of uh, anxiety and some stress about a couple things to do with uh, one of the businesses I help run. And I thought, this is crazy. Cause I, you know, in a moment of clarity, I really, you know, I understood, well, most of these things are never going to come to pass. And it's just my brain working overtime. So I actually started a little section in a notebook and just said like, okay, every time like one of these kind of out, outliers pops up, I'm going to write it down. And then every quarter I've just got a calendar event, like, Hey, go back and look through that. How many of those uh, came to pass? Uh, so yeah, that's become part of my quarterly review. So if anyone else out there is like me and you get those crazy thoughts, like start writing them down and you know, you can get to that point, I think, where you don't worry so much when you realize that, yeah, 99.9% .9 of the stuff you think about will never happen. <laughs> right. Well, the last question I've got for you today, uh, what book or piece of media, it uh, doesn't have to be a book, do you find yourself recommending the most to people these days? Oh, Wow. That is a great question. What do I recommend the most to people these days? My, uh, my favorite movie of all time is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I will recommend that movie at the drop of a hat. But mostly for a variety of, of narrative structure reasons. But 
I think that, um, you know, lately what I've really been encouraging people to do is to start and quit media. Hmm. Uh, we have this uh, culture that says, if you start it, you need to finish it. I want to binge that show. I want to see what happens. And I've been encouraging people, turn a show on, open a book, set the alarm on your phone for a specified number of minutes, maybe 10 minutes for a show or half an hour for a book. And when it goes off, no matter what stop you're doing, stop right there and say, do I really want to finish this? I really like that. I think that that's a, a great idea. For me, I've had that problem with reading books where I feel like, well, I've started, I need to finish this with no reason behind that. It's just, it's that's just what you're supposed to do. It's the sunk cost fallacy, right? And yeah. it affects almost everything we do. Well, I've already spent all this money. I might as well keep going. Yep. Yep. And like, nope, you can just stop digging and go on into greener pastures at any moment. That That, that is an option. That's right. Oh man, that's great. I like that. All right. So we got Raiders of the Lost Ark and I'm going to put it still under your book recommendation as being okay with stopping, you know, try reading for 30 minutes and saying, Hey, if this hasn't grabbed my attention, move on, find something else. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, Robbie, I know you mentioned uh, you've got a new book coming out. Uh, and so first of all, I really appreciate you sharing everything that you did today. Um, but obviously what is the book? We didn't have a, a chance to get into that. Yeah, it just came out at the end of last year, and it was, it's called The New Science of Time Management. You can get it on, on Amazon and various places. And uh, this book is really the culmination of a lot of research that I've done into very current trends in social psychology about how the brain works and how we perceive and understand time. And you know, most time management books are pretty much, here's a system, or here's how you should block your time. This book is about the emotional impact of what you have to do. If you think about your schedule or your responsibilities or your life, uh, you have emotional reactions to everything. Either you're excited about it, you're nervous about it, you're looking forward to it, you're dreading it, whatever it might be. And if you're just aware of the emotional impact of your tasks, then you can predict what's going to happen. If you give yourself a whole bunch of depressing things to do, you're gonna have a terrible day. But if you give yourself a whole bunch of high energy things to do, you're gonna be so keyed up you can't sleep. So planning what you have to do over the course of the day or the week or the month based on the emotional impact can really transform what you do and being aware of the psychology that affects us all. Very cool. All right, well, I am going to check it out. So I encourage other people, if that sounds like something good to you like it does to me to go and check that out. I will put the link uh, in the show notes. So uh, thank you again so much for your time. But in general, if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, you can look for me online. Robbie's thought it is my uh, my name all over the place. Our company is called Accelerwork, A-C-C-E-L-A-W-R-K. But uh, always happy to chat, drop me a note, uh, send me a tweet, whatever you like. Awesome. Thanks again, Robbie. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Real World Productivity Podcast. If you know someone that would enjoy this episode, please grab the link and send it via email, message, or whatever means works best. Now, if you're looking for more ways to increase your productivity, time management, and team building skills, be sure to go to productivity.academy resources to find out what tools, cheat sheets, and services can get you started and make the most impact right now. For those who want to make fast changes and want to save dozens of hours, I highly recommend joining the 14-Day Productivity Foundation Challenge at productivity.academy foundationchallenge. This 14-day challenge takes minutes per day but will help you develop or improve your daily review to get more done with less distractions and loss of focus. 
You'll also get over-the-shoulder directions for setting up an automation to save dozens of hours and the process for deciding what else you should automate and how to do it. And if you're serious about continuous improvement and you know that productivity, time management, and team building will impact every area of your personal and professional life, join us in the Growth Automation Membership. Find out more at productivity.academy/join.